This summer we've been walking through uh, Hebrews chapter 11, looking at, at faith. What is faith as the Bible describes it? What are these pictures of faith that the Bible puts before us? And as you look through Hebrews 11, you find that there are 12 different pictures of faith. But as we walked into Hebrews 11 at the beginning of the summer, I know some of you are, are here, have um, been able to come intermittently because of the summer. Some are here for the first time, however that works. As, as you work through the book of Hebrews, there's a pervasive argument. And the argument as it goes through the book is that Jesus is better than everything. And in fact, it says that in, in, in Hebrews 1, 4, it says he's greater than the angels. Continues in chapter 3 to say he's greater than Moses. In 4 and 5, he's greater than the high priest. In chapter 7, he's a better hope, a better covenant. In chapter 8, he better promises. In chapter 9, he's a better sacrifice. In chapter 10, he's a better possession. Over and over and over again, you get this picture in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is far superior than anything else we could trust. Now, an interesting thing, and I'm going to actually turn the page on it this, this summer. I've been waiting to do this. But if you look at Hebrews chapter 12 for just a second, because having finished up these 12 pictures of faith, you get to 12. And, and I didn't work this into our preaching calendar, and I should have. But chapter 12 says this, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we look at these different pictures of the faith, the author of Hebrews wants us to see that we have this tremendous cloud of witnesses, this tremendous heritage of faith, these stories over and over and over again of people pursuing faith that we might really be encouraged, as this says, to lay aside every weight. And to lay aside sin which clings so closely. And to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because of Jesus. We've been looking at faith. According to Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. It's about him. It's always been about him. It's not about a moral code or a set of rules. Faith is about taking God at his word and living like it's true. That's why as we walk through this, you see these early examples. In 11.3, you see the example of the world. By faith, we believe that God created the world. Do we take God at his word? When we read his promises, do we cling to them as true? When we read his commands, do we cling to them as true? We get these early examples of Abel and Enoch, two men, according to the scriptures, who believed, who walked with God. There's not a long list of accomplishments. Now, we keep pointing that out week after week because it's pretty easy for us when we come to a chapter like Hebrews 11 to think that these are all expert professional believers who made no mistake and are seriously faithful people. And yet, time and again, we've walked through some of their life stories to realize these people weren't perfect. They believed God. And that's what faith is. Faith doesn't require our perfection. It doesn't require a set of rules or more code. Faith requires that we believe Jesus and that we put our faith in him. 
In the story of Noah, we see that faith is obedience. Noah took God at his word and did something extraordinary. He wasn't perfect. He just trusted God's commands as much as he trusted God's promises. In the story of Abraham, we had three different pictures. Abraham was called to leave the land of his father, believing that God would show him greater things. Abraham trusted God's promises and left everything that was comfortable to him, believing that God had his best in mind. And through his whole story, Abraham was continually reminded that God wanted to keep his promises to him. And at 88 years old, God affirms to Abraham that he plans to give him a child. At 99 years old, God shows back up into his life and wants to remind him that he's going to give him a child. See, God keeps showing up in Abraham's life and keeps telling him, I'm trustworthy. Will you believe me? It doesn't matter if it makes sense. Imagine being 99, just for a minute. We don't have any 99-year-olds. God's still asserting, I'm trustworthy and I'll keep my promises. And in this case, to give you a literal physical heritage. And at 100 years of age, God reminds him again that he'll keep his word with the birth of his son. He wants Abraham to understand that faith and that God's promises are not rooted in our abilities or our strengths or our understandings. That God's promises are rooted in in his nature and in his character. And his promises are based on him. And we see that those promises carry us through testing as Abraham takes Isaac up a hill. And we were reminded last week that we all endure different trials and challenges. And yet God always proves trustworthy. Even in the different challenges and trials that we face. And this morning, we turn to Hebrews 11 verses 20 and 22. And we're going to get three different pictures of the faith that are really small and they're really tied together and we'll walk through them together. Hebrews eleven twenty through 22. It says, By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing worship over the head of his staff. By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And we start to see these other pictures of our forefathers, of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. What did their faith really look like? What did it matter for them to have faith? Well, every week as a matter of practice, we've taken these stories, we've walked back into the Old Testament to look at the Old Testament story to see what this looked like. Well, in this particular case, if we're going to take them together, we'd get 26 chapters in the book of Genesis. Uh, That would take us a while. So we're actually not going to walk through all of Genesis so that we can see Isaac's faith at hold and Jacob's faith and Joseph's faith. But I think the capturing idea in all of these passages and the capturing point in this book of Hebrews is that by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, we could delve into the story of Jacob and Esau, but the root of the passage in Hebrews 11 when discussing Jacob and Esau is that when Isaac came to the end of his life and he looked at his two boys, he blessed them in the name of the Father. He blessed them, wanting them to know that God would keep his promises, that God was faithful, and that God was true. And he looked at his boys and he wanted them to know that. And he blessed them in the name of the Lord. And in 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. 
bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob, when coming to the end of his life, set aside a time to bless the sons of Joseph, his grandsons, bowing in worship. Jacob, having lived a life of faith, looked at his grandsons and wanted them to know that God would keep his promises, that God was faithful and God was true. And he wanted them to be assured of God's great hope for them. And in 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That Joseph, at the end of his life, in Genesis 50, sits down and wants his people to understand that God will keep his promises. So we will turn to the Old Testament, but just for a moment. In fact, in Genesis 50, 24 and 25, you get this little picture of Joseph. It says in verse 24, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. At the end of his life, Joseph sat down with his family and wanted to explain to them how God had been faithful to him and to his father and to his grandfather. How God has always been faithworthy or trustworthy and faithful over and over and over again. He wanted his his family to know that God would keep his promises and that God has better things for them than this and that he desired to set them free. In fact, he even forecast the exodus. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are commended for their faith. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph took God at his word and they believed what God had said to be true and they saw the promises that God had, promises that were yet to be fulfilled And they still clung to him. And they still spoke of him. And they still instilled it in their family. They trusted God. They trusted his word. So much so that they did something unique. They told their kids about it. And this lineage carried on so much of fathers telling their sons of God's faithfulness. About his faithfulness. About God's faithfulness so much so that one of the greatest teachings out of the Exodus shows up in Deuteronomy 6. So let's turn there. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. God challenges them already. Moses, through Moses, and we'll talk about Moses next week. Moses wants to put before these people right thinking about God. Why? Because they believed him. And they took him at his word. And the faith of Abraham that got passed to Isaac, that got passed to Jacob, that got passed to Joseph, carried on and on and on and on. That by faith these men believed God so much that they didn't just keep it to themselves, but they passed it on. Because they desperately wanted their family to know and to understand that God was faithful and that God was true. And so they pass on these beliefs about God. Hear, O Israel. It's a command. It's a cry. People believe this. 
The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. It's the greatest testimony of faith that a Jewish person can give. It's an acknowledgement that God is alive, that God is king. The Lord. It surpasses any other understanding. The Lord our God is one. That he's unified, that he's together. And then a command. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. With all of your soul and with all of your might. That they were called to love God. To honor what he had done and to continue to trust his promises. To continue to hold on to him and to give him everything. To meditate on it, to chew on it. But it wasn't just for them. Deuteronomy 6 continues in 7 through 9 and says, And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. You start to see this faith heritage, this legacy of the faith get built. That Abraham loved Isaac, and Isaac loved Jacob, and Jacob loved Joseph. And it carries on and on and on so that Israel as a nation sits down and defines God and defines the relationship with God, and he puts them before him. It says, tell your kids. Teach your children. Well, well when? When's a good time to teach your kids about God? Well, according to Deuteronomy 6, whenever you sit down. Also, whenever you walk. Also, when you go to bed. Also, when you rise from the bed. Now, if we were to take that somewhat literally, and we were to consider that when you woke up this morning was a great time to tell your children about the Lord, and when you sat down was a great time to tell your children about the Lord, and when you walked somewhere was a great time to tell your children about the Lord, I'm guessing you've sat down again. And I'm guessing you're about to walk somewhere else, and I'm going to guess you're going to sit down a couple more times before you sit down again tonight before bedtime to tell them about the Lord. Do you start to see this legacy of the faith that Israel is trying to build into their children of talking about God's faithfulness and his trustworthiness over and over and over again? So that it wasn't just about these guys wholeheartedly trusting God and taking his word it's true. It was believing that it was so true and believing that it was so powerful and so real that they couldn't help but tell their children. They couldn't help but talk about it all the time. That it was the one thing they had to continuously put before their children all the time. Now, if you're a parent here, that's challenging. I think the one thing my kids hear from me all the time is no. Put that down. Stop shaking your sister. And yet the challenge for us is to believe in God so much. To take his promises is so true. To give everything to him so thoroughly. That it's the only thing that I'm chewing on all day. That as I'm struggling to discipline my kids, it's to remind them I'm, I'm disciplining you. Not because I, I don't love you. I love you with this tremendous love. But God loves you with a better love. God is way more faithful. In fact, I talked to a, a dad a couple weeks ago who was telling me that he explains to his daughters that he's their daddy, but that God is their father. I thought that was a beautiful picture. He's their daddy, 
He's their earthly vessel given charge over them, but he, he will fail them. He's not as trustworthy. But that God was their father who is trustworthy and faithful in all things. I think when we consider the faith of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, we have to consider the legacy of their faith, that they instilled wholeheartedly this notion of talking to their kids about it all the time. And I think as a parent, I have to be challenged by that. I have to be challenged by that thoroughly. In fact, a while back, Pam and I were talking about our children. I, I want my kids to know the Lord so bad. We, we constantly are praying for them and constantly looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them. In fact, a couple years ago, I was, I was reading Jonathan Edwards' biography, and then he talks about sharing the gospel with his two-year-olds every day so that they'd hear the gospel and it would just be before them. And I haven't done that. But the challenge for us is there. And one of the things that Pam talked about, it was interesting, is that we had never sat down and shared our faith with our children. And it's such a basic thought. But I've never sat down with my five-year-old and given him my testimony. I've never walked through my life with him and said, Pierce, I want you to know that where I spent my time, that as a high school student, I really sought everything that I wanted, everything that seemed that would please me, and everything that felt good, I just pursued. And then I found my identity in all kinds of false things. And it was so simple, and it was so easy for me to do it. Until I found Jesus. And when I found Jesus, I found something better. I found something more significant. I found a, a foundation I could actually build my life upon. Something that wouldn't crack or crumble. And to be able to walk with my children through what God had done through my life. And the fascinating thing for that church this morning is that that's exactly what the Israelites were doing. They were sitting down with their kids and they were walking them through the story of God's faithfulness with them as a nation and with them as people. And that's our calling for ourselves is to, to deal with our kids. And if you happen to be a grandparent, you're not excused. Because Jacob met with his grandsons. So you now get to pass on your faith to your grandchildren. And yet there are some of us in here who aren't parents and who aren't grandparents. And if you're in neither of those categories, this calling is for all of us too. Because you find... That as Abraham's faith legacy was passed to Isaac and it continued and continued and continued, Abraham was also called to be a blessing. Abraham was blessed so that he would be a blessing. That in God's original plan, God's original promise to Abraham, he put before him the call to bless the world. So it wasn't just about Abraham telling his kids and it wasn't just about Abraham telling his kids his testimony. It was about Abraham telling everybody the greatness of God. So much so that when you get to the New Testament, this carries on. Colossians 1.28 says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, I've confessed multiple times that I was never an English major, and that I'm not a great with the English language. But I'm pretty sure when you get to an everyone, that that's a pretty inclusive term. And that if you're going to use it three times in a sentence, there's a comprehensiveness there that we need to appreciate. Him, we proclaim, we verbalize publicly, actually, in Colossians, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone 
mature in Christ. Because we believe, like half the people at football stadiums do, with John 3.16, that God so loved the world. And so just as God would call Abraham to be a blessing, he's calling us to be a blessing. So if God is going to love the world, we get to be a part of that conduit that loves the world on his behalf, that shows the world his son Jesus, and that talks about him. One of the clearest places we find this in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5. Now, I can't remember which time I visited here, but I preached about this one of the times I visited. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. What Paul is articulating to the Corinthians is because of Jesus Christ, we no longer look at people according to the flesh. We no longer look at people according to what they can do for me or how they can meet my needs or how they can help me accomplish what's before me or toss them aside because we don't see them as helpful for us or our social standing. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. 17 is an extraordinarily familiar Bible verse to most believers. But what we fail to do oftentimes is to connect it in the context of its passage. That what Paul is articulating is that everyone has tremendous potential in Jesus Christ. And that what we need to hope for people is to see the potential of Jesus Christ in everyone. So that we don't write people off or we don't accessorize our life with our friends. But rather we see the great hope of Jesus Christ in everyone we come around. The old has passed, the new has come. What's the new? What came? Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That in Jesus Christ, God reconciled you to himself. That at the death of Jesus, your sins were covered completely and entirely, and you were reconciled to the Father. And you were given a ministry of reconciliation so that you could talk about how you were reconciled, you could talk about how you were forgiven, and you could publicize the fact that the Father is a forgiver. And that he's a reconciler. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That as the church in the 21st century, we need to appreciate that the message of reconciliation has in part been entrusted to us. Absolutely, categorically, empirically, it's the Holy Spirit, right? We're there. But the message is also entrusted to us. So you get to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As if God was making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That in Christ Jesus we were made the righteousness of God. And in Christ Jesus all of our sins were forgiven. And in Christ Jesus we were given an extraordinary gift that we are called to pass along. So if we go back to Hebrews 11 and we look at the faith of Abraham, we look at the faith of Isaac, we look at the faith of Jacob and the faith of Joseph, we find that these guys' faith, at least in Hebrews, is commended because they passed it along. Their faith is commended because they thought so much of the Father. They thought so much of what God had done for them. They found his message so moving, so true, so powerful, that they had to tell their kids. They had to pour it out. And they had to keep building and and continue and continue and continue. And Abraham built a legacy for his faith. And Isaac. And Isaac did and Jacob. And Jacob did and Joseph. And on and on and on. So we come to this question. What's the legacy of your faith? What's the legacy of your faith? I'm really good at pauses for tension. Because I think we really need to consider it. What's the legacy of our faith? Has God done so much in our lives that we can't help talking about it? Has God done so much in our lives that we just really want, really, really want to just brag on him? (laughs) You would not believe what God forgave me of. (laughs) You would not believe what a horrid sinner I used to be. God, it's incredible. What's the legacy of our faith? If we want to follow Isaac or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we absolutely have to tell our children. And we have to tell our grandchildren. And, and, and without question, if you want to walk through the Bible, I, we can decide, we can get to the point that our children need to be our greatest disciples. That we have a responsibility to teach our kids the Bible, to train them up in righteousness, I've been really challenged by that this week, by the way, about my call to disciple my children better. And yet we have to also appreciate the fact that it wasn't just about our kids. God didn't desire just to save our children. It's not an exclusive club. We don't ask for membership badges at the door where if you're the son of so-and-so or the grandson of so-and-so, we let you in. Now, the church is for believers in Jesus Christ, people who are gathering together to talk about the greatness of what his son did at the cross so that we can all glory in that forgiveness. What kind of legacy are you wanting to lead? It's an interesting stop in the moment when you, you take Hebrews and Hebrews and Hebrews and Hebrews. When we walk through all these passages to see how the author is doing, and then you come to these three. And I did read all 27 chapters of Genesis, probably three or four times. And you get stuck in the middle of what does it mean that these guys' faith, what does it mean to pass it on? And then you stop and you go, huh, by faith they passed it on. By faith, they trusted God's word enough to really think it was significant. By faith, they really trusted God's word to to find life and salvation in it. So by faith, they told other people. And that was really extraordinary to me. By faith, 
by taking God at his word, they trusted God enough to tell other people about his word. Friends, we have a tremendous Savior in Jesus Christ. If you took the challenge early on to read through the book of Hebrews, you saw over and over and over again that the the picture that Jesus is far superior than anything else in this world we could put our hope in. If you haven't, pick up Hebrews, the whole book this week, and read through it. And ask yourself the question, what in my life am I finding more significant than Jesus? And at the end of it, at the end of it, I hope you're challenged to see that what we have in Christ is amazing. It's without words. We don't deserve salvation. We never have. God did an incredible thing reconciling us to himself through his son. An incredible, incredible thing. So by faith, we should tell other people about it.